This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6, continuing to plow through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, chapter 5 dealt with injustices. We didn't spend a whole lot of time there because I didn't, frankly didn't think there was a whole lot for you all to learn out of that chapter. I think you're pretty good at the lessons that came out of chapter 5. We did touch on it here and there. And then taking care of the poor, making sure we treat people fairly, and that we look out for those who uh, need our assistance in whatever form that needs to take. But Nehemiah chapter 6 is packed with, with uh, information that I think is going to be really helpful for us. And so we're just going to read through it as we usually do, and then we'll go back and break it down, do a deep dive into some parts of it. So when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. I like that. Consistent. Stick with it. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt And therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. 
Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they had realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were, sent, were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. All right, a lot going on there. And as I was reading, studying that this week, I decided that there are several meant words, M-E-N-T, words that apply here. You don't find all of them in here, but I've concluded through reading it and examining it very closely that there are these meant words that would be a good vehicle for us to dig in and see what we can learn out of it. And the first word is the word alignment. Okay, so let's look back at verses 1 through 2a and see what we mean by alignment. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono, all right, alignment. So here you have Nehemiah and his brothers and his people who are on a mission. Okay, think about what mission you're on and think about who's in the camp with you on this mission that you're on. Okay. You have these other people who are standing on the perimeter who are not part of this mission, but they are part of the family. Don't forget about that. We're going to get a little bit further into this about how the family aspect is important. The church family and the biological aspect is important. It's important sometimes in not so positive ways. Sometimes it can be very positive. Sometimes it can be very beneficial. But just because it's family doesn't mean it's always going to be all right. Would you agree with that? How many of you would say that probably the most significant problems you've ever had in your life involved some folks that were in your family? That's the case with most people. And there's a lot to say about that, but we're not going to hang out there too long. What I mean by alignment is when you are on a mission from God, a God-given assignment, it is paramount. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that you stay aligned with the right people and the right things. And it's easy to get off of that 
narrow pathway because it's usually going to be a narrow pathway that includes a small number of people when you're involved in these God-given assignments and these missions. It's usually not about the masses. We're standing at Upson Lee graduation the other night, spent the whole time standing up on the hill talking to Mark, Mark Pritchett, who's the pastor of, of um, Northridge, right? And he asked me how the church was doing. I said, the church is doing awesome. And he asked me something about our attendance, and I said, yeah, man, it's small. I love it. And he laughed. And I said, because I'm just not good with big numbers. I just don't feel like I do effective ministry with big numbers. Listen, I'm not passing any judgment, criticizing anybody who has big numbers in their churches. But I'm telling you, if you have a big church with big numbers, you better have that broken down into smaller numbers with qualified and experienced and anointed leaders over those smaller numbers who are discipling them and leading them on the God-given assignments or you're going to be less effective than you are supposed to be because it is absolutely impossible for one pastor to effectively disciple 500 people, much less a 1,000 or more. It just can't happen. And this is why you have the pandemic of shallow Christianity in America is because you've got a lot of huge churches that are doing some good stuff. And when it comes to grassroots, fireside-type discipleship, it's not happening because they're not breaking those, that big group down into small groups with qualified and anointed leadership really digging in and discipling people. When you are on a God-given mission, you have to be aligned with the right people and the right things. You have to be committed to ignoring the distractions even if the distractions seem like they're coming from very important people, influential people, money people, smart people, successful people. They come along and they say, hey, let me help you with your project. Well, are we connected? Are we knit together in our spirits? Are we, are we riding the same ship here? Because I'm not giving you time of day if you're just some person with an opinion, with a checkbook, with an education, with influence over the masses. I don't care about that. We have to be aligned by the Spirit to tackle the God-given assignment. You know, City of Refuge, Board of Directors is now a highly sought-after thing. For people, you've got lots of people who would love to hold a seat on the board of directors, but nobody sits in a seat on the board of directors unless that came about through relationship, through alignment. The lady who's the founder and CEO of a big corporation who comes, and it actually happened, and tours the property. First time we've ever laid eyes on her. And in the meeting following, sitting in the conference room, she says, I'm ready to write the first check, big check, believe me, a lot of zeros behind it. Big check, I'm ready to write a check. Hey, well, God bless, thank you, we appreciate it. But 
I need a seat on the board of directors. She needed to dictate where her contribution was going to go. I need to be in control. I need to have this sort of influence. I'll write you the check if you give me a seat on the board. Thanks for coming, but no thanks. It's not the way it works. We're on a God-given mission. We have to be aligned. So you have Nehemiah who's been given this mission, this assignment. He's got his people around him. They're in alignment. They are working. They're protecting each other. They're promoting each other. They're encouraging each other. They are locked in together. The ones that work by day are standing guard by night. It's a team effort. They are aligned with God who gave the assignment, and they're aligned with each other as a community of faith. And you have these guys standing on the outside looking in who want to give an opinion, who want to access to the control over parts of your operation, who want to intimidate you but want to try to do it nicely. Hey, let's meet out here in this little village at the cafe on the plains and let's talk. Let's see how we can work together. And I love how the name of the town or the name of the plane is, oh no, it's like, is that for real? Or is that something they're just stuck in there to be funny? It's like Nehemiah's like, oh no. No, you're not getting me out there. I know what you're about. This is not the way it works. Alignment. I love the concept of alignment, especially when you're talking about spiritual matters. Because it starts, the way I see it in my head, it starts with God at the pinnacle. And then it comes down in a cone. Right? And you have to live your life in a way that moves you inside the cone. You have to live inside that cone. Because here's the key. Saturating everything inside that cone is the Spirit of God. If you're in the cone, you're in the Spirit. If you're outside any line on that cone, even if it's that much, you're still outside. See, because life in the Spirit is an all-in. Listen, it's important. Got to know it. It's an all-in or it's a nothing. It's all-in or it's nothing. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. You live your life in the Spirit or you don't live your life in the Spirit. One or the other. It, 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 it's a good thing to evaluate and figure out where you are. That's a good launch pad. Because you're never going to move in until you acknowledge that you're not in. Acknowledging that you're not in is step number one to getting in. And when you move inside that cone, man, I'm telling you, what a thrilling, satisfying, fulfilling way to live inside the cone of alignment so that everything, look, everything coming down from the Father. What does James say? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. There is no shifting and changing and ducking and dodging with Him. You can depend on it. If you're living inside that cone, every good thing He has for you is going to flow down on top of you. It's the importance of alignment.
The second meant word is the word discernment. Starting at the end of chapter of a verse two there. <laughs> but they were scheming to harm me. Who told him that? So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Of course, let's listen to Geshem, whoever he is. That you and... Next screen. The Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together, trying all the, all, all the stuff they think will draw, all the temptations and Nehemiah is not buying a word of it. He's not going with their marketing strategies. He's not believing the lies. He's not believing the gossip, the innuendo. He knows everything they're saying already. So this is not news to him. But he also knows that he's on an assignment from God to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the gates and to get the people back inside of the protective boundaries of what God has provided for them. It is, I believe, a spirit of discernment. Now look, there are a lot of things that we should desire in the kingdom and discernment should be near the top of the list. If you have a great dependency on your own ability to figure out what's going on in the spirit world behind the scenes, then go for it. If you have that, if, you, if you've been educated enough, if, you, if you're capable, if you believe you're capable of managing the contrast between good and evil, good luck. But I'm going to tell you that there's a gift available to you, and it's called the gift of discernment. It's listed in the major 12 gifts of the Spirit. It's listed in other places as a beneficial gift that God wants to give to His children. And what it does is it helps you to know in the moment whether or not what's coming at you or coming in your ear is from God or somewhere else. Don't you think that would be a good thing to have? I look back on the times when I lived without it, and man, how counterproductive it was to not have it, to depend on myself, to believe that I'm capable. You see, the reason God told Eve and Adam in the garden not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil is because he was well aware that they were in no way capable of managing the contrast between good and evil. 
But after they chose to give that a shot anyway, and after the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we're celebrating today, by the way, right? What was offered to us through that great gift is a spirit of discernment so that you can know in the moment, is this God or is this something else? <coughs> and even if it's positive and feels good, doesn't necessarily mean that it's from God. But He, through the gift of discernment, will let you know if it's from Him or not. And you'll get this peace in your heart and in your mind about it once you discern that it's from Him. So these guys act like they're trying to protect Nehemiah. They act like they're doing something good. Hey man, slow down. You can't do this. You must not have thought of this. There's already a king in, in Jerusalem. Uh, there, there's a bad, bad uh, word going on out in the community about you because it looks like you're trying to set up a situation to run a coup, to revolt. This is dangerous. This is risky. Listen, to, we're trying to help you. Nehemiah's like, mm, no. <clears throat> and every time they come to him with a different approach, it simply says, I gave them the same answer. That's what we need to do, just keep giving the same answer. Same answer, over and over and over. No, I think I'll stick with God's plan instead of following after your scheming, instead of listening to your voice. The third meant word is the word commitment. Taking that out of one half of one verse, verse 9, the second half of verse 9. It says, yeah, their hands will get too weak. This is what they're saying to him. Their hands will get too weak to do the work, and it will not be completed. But here's the part that shows the commitment. But I prayed now, now strengthen my hands. What's his response to this attempt to instill fear in him about what's coming? You know, your, your people are going to become afraid because they're going to hear about what's going to happen to you all, all of you, if you keep doing this work. You're going to be destroyed. By the existing king and his army, you're going to be destroyed. By your enemies, you're going to be destroyed. And then, once they hear that, bear in mind, nothing's happened. It's just a threat that's intended to instill fear. Nothing has happened. Nobody has attacked them. It's all yik-yak at this point. It's all an attempt to distract and to bring fear into the picture. And he says, what's going to happen when they become afraid is that their hands are going to get weak. That's just a, that's a metaphor for saying they're just going to be so messed up inside, so afraid, so anxious that they're not going to be able to effectively carry on this work anymore. Then what are you going to do? You're going to be stuck with a job half done. And you're going to be exposed when the enemy does attack. And Nehemiah's immediate response says, Now, 
Now that you've come to me with this, now my prayer is my God who gave me this assignment. Strengthen my hand. Strengthen. It's almost like he's praying this right in their presence. I don't know if he was or not, but it happens. It's put together as if he's still talking to them, still in their presence, at least of their messenger, and he's saying, now, strengthen my hands. And you're going to see what happens when I depend on the strength that God brings, when I commit myself to his plan rather than your words, your ploys, you're going to see how much stronger my hands become than they are now. Listen, your commitment to your God-given assignment will create strength in you that you never knew existed. It's one of those things I always thought was an interesting prayer. How many times have you heard somebody pray, God, give them strength? I've prayed that, and I've heard it prayed a lot, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that prayer. But if you really want strength, i tell you how to get it. Commit yourself to the God-given task and stick with it no matter what else happens. Because every time you re-up on that commitment, new strength comes. New strength. New energy. New vision. New clarity. God God is a God of renewal. He's not a God that just, bam, lays it on you one time, it's done, you're good to go from now on. He's a God of renewal. The psalmist said, renew over and over and over a right spirit in me. It's perpetual. It's ongoing. It's all the time. And when we choose to compromise on the commitment, guess what happens? The strength starts to ease off. All, those, all that good stuff, all that spiritual nourishment, we start to become malnourished. We start, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how this all works for you in your own personal life, but I can tell you this right here. Two days early this past week, open confession, I didn't take my morning time with the Lord seriously. I, that's, that's not frequent for me, but two days early in the week, I was covered up with stuff I needed to get an early start, so I jumped up and I kind of just toyed with it, and then I was out the door. Tracy just looked over here and said, shame on you. You know what? She saw the results of it. Two days. Was I, was I like hard to get along with in the middle of the week? And I was not like just trying to be hard to get along with. It wasn't like I was even conscious of what was going on. She finally looked at me and said, why are you acting like this? And I'm like, I don't know. I got a lot on me. That was my answer. I got a lot on me. Right? But I really came to understand why over the next couple of days, which was I had cheated myself out of my good morning nourishment the way it's supposed to happen. And just that fast, it had started to impact my behavior, my communication, my attitude. 
Because God renews. Morning by morning, He renews as we re-up on our commitment. And here y'all thought I was perfect. Sorry. we got to move on to the next mint. Enticement. <clears throat> this is a good one. Verses 10 to 13. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, I don't want to pronounce all these names again, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let's meet at the church. And let's close the church doors because men are coming to kill you. Safe place, the church, right? By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the church to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Enticed in the church by church people by people in the family trying to use the church trying to weaponize the church against a brother in the church discernment comes into play again here because he says i realized what this guy was doing this guy is well respected and guess what else he's probably elderly but even if he's not elderly He's sickly because he's shut in. Did you catch that? He's a shut-in. He's pitiful. He's somebody that there, there's no way we're going to suspect this guy is doing anything wrong, right? We're not, let's not su suspect that this guy could be on a mission for the enemy. And maybe the guy don't even know that's what's happening. Maybe he's just been convinced by Sanballat and Tobiah that he's doing something good. I don't know. But here's the point. The point is, is if we don't have, if we're not in the cone, if we're not living life in the Spirit, we can be enticed by things that seem like they're right. That seem like they're good. You know? Inside the house of faith, inside the community of Christ, inside the family. We can be enticed, we can be influenced, we can look at the external factors around it and conclude, well, there's probably nothing wrong with this because look who it is. Let me tell you what, who it is has put the proverbial knife in my back before. Hey, I won't, I won't disparage the dead, but I'll tell you that there, there's somebody I worked for in the ministry who put the knife in my back, and he's my pastor and my boss in the household of faith. And I'm telling you, not, I'm not telling you to be paranoid. I'm not telling you to be distrustful of people. I'm telling you to live your life inside the cone so that you'll have a discerning spirit. And it took me not long at all 
to realize what this guy was about and to get out of his circle, out of his presence, because we weren't both living in the same spot. So, Sanballat and Tobiah doing everything they can, going and get this shut-in guy to try to get Nehemiah to come to the church. Why? And, and, and he tries to trick him by saying, if you don't get in the church, you're going to get killed, when what he was trying to do was get him in the church so they could kill him. That took me to Jesus' lesson on how to pray. And man, let me tell you, I'll tell you the piece of that prayer that has intrigued me through the years more than any other. It's not acknowledgement of God's sovereignty that starts the prayer. It's not a prayer that His kingdom would come, His will would be done. All that's powerfully important, but it's not that. It's not a request for forgiveness of sins, although we can't put a price tag on how important that is. <clears throat> it's the next part. Do not lead me into temptation. But what? Deliver me from evil. What does that, what does that mean? And, and by the way, this is not anybody else in the Bible or anybody else anywhere telling us this. This is Jesus Christ himself teaching us how to pray. And he says, when you pray... Ask God that he would not lead you into temptation and that he would deliver you from evil. I have tossed that around in my head so much in my lifetime. And, I, and I'm not finished with it. But I tell you what I have concluded. It's not my job to deliver myself from temptation. And it's not my job to deliver myself from evil. Temptation and evil are always going to be there. And the fact of the matter is, is that I cannot gain victory over either one by myself. That's his job. How often are we trying to do God work and just are not qualified and not capable of doing it? You go read through the whole book of Nehemiah. Every time you turn around, what does it say? It says, he prayed says it in this chapter, he prayed. This tremendous dependency on the one who is capable. He prayed. And so, we should all pray all the time, Lord, protect me. Do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I depend on you. And if you're living inside the cone, he'll do it. Fulfillment. Only one more after this. We're almost done. Verse 15. Fulfillment. Fulfillment is the culmination of, of being obedient to the process. You could have started out chapter 6 or chap, verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 1 by saying, Nehemiah accomplished this incredible feat by rebuilding walls around a city and, and installing the gates in 52 days and then told the story. But I love the fact that it shows up late in chapter 6 because what we see leading up to it is the process that he's been called to and that is required. It's required that you be obedient to the steps in the process. And when you do that, 
you will find your fulfillment. Anybody ever sought for just fulfillment? I just, I just want to be fulfilled. Yeah, it's a good spot to live, but you're going to live perpetually disappointed if you try to get that early on. You're just going to feel like an utter failure because it's like Mark Twain said, if you're going to build a brick wall, you've got to lay one brick. You've got to lay one brick, the first one. If you never lay that brick, you're never going to build a wall. We want the wall. We don't want to lay the brick. Laying brick requires commitment. Laying brick requires dedication. It requires obedience to the process or you never have a brick wall. If you want to observe and enjoy the benefits of that beautiful big brick wall, lay a brick and celebrate the fact that you got one brick laid. Right? Just celebrate it. Stand back. You know, I've tried and tried to build a hog pen that will keep hogs in. It still ain't working. I have celebrated so many steps in the process, and now I just cuss. No, I'm just kidding. I don't cuss. Miss Lynn, I don't cuss, really. I was just saying. I was just joking. Maybe I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but if you're going to build anything, doesn't it require commitment to the steps in the process? If you're going to bake a cake, what do you got to do first? You got you got to do step number one. You got to get your ingredients together. You got to start measuring stuff. You put it in the bowl one at a time. You're not going to get that great, beautiful, delicious cake if you didn't walk through the process. You're not going to find your fulfillment in terms of the God-given assignment if you do not remain obedient to the steps in the process. But the fulfillment comes. On the 25th of Elul, whatever that was, in 52 days. It's taking me a lot longer than that, Nehemiah, but I get the point. Fulfillment. And the last word is embattlement. Now, I hate to end on a negative note, but we have to deal with reality, right? We have to deal with reality. Verse 16, <coughs> when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. That's it, right? Throw a party, it's done. We built the wall, we're good to go. They're going to leave us alone now. Our enemies heard about it. They're afraid. They're going on about their business. They're not going to mess with us. They see the power we're operating in. They see we're living inside the cone. They see God's blessing us. They're going to leave us alone, right? Uh, maybe not. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was a son-in-law. Listen, he married into the family. This is that in-law that you wish you'd never laid eyes on. He was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jeho Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said 
And what did Tobiah do? He sent letters to intimidate me. They're not going to leave you alone, y'all. Those who are living outside the cone are not going to all of a sudden just give up and leave and, and, and not bother those who are inside the cone anymore. There will always be an attempt to destroy God's work. And a lot of the times it will make no sense whatsoever. It just doesn't make any sense. All through this story of Nehemiah, you have to just shake your head and say, why? Why would they not want this? What, you know, what's wrong? Why are they doing this? Is it a power play? Is it jealousy? What is it? I mean, come on, you've got a guy who's shown up here who's a qualified leader who has resourced the materials from the king of Persia to do this job. He's obviously a man of integrity, a man of influence, a man of dignity, a man who approaches his work with passion and excellence. He's getting the job done. He has the commitment of his people. Why would we try to destroy that? Even if we don't want to be part of it, why don't we just go our way and stop fighting against it? Why, why, why? Why is there always opposition to the work of God? Why is there always opposition to a kingdom mission? <clears throat> because the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he will use anybody who has left the door of their heart cracked open for him to get in there and start to influence their thinking and their motivation to come against the work of God, even if it seems to make no sense whatsoever, because he doesn't care if it makes any sense. All he wants to do is to destroy the work of God in the earth. So expect it so that you can be ready for it. So that you won't be derailed, so that you won't be disappointed, so that you won't be taken off guard. Expect it so that it will send you to your knees in prayer. All the time, just like Nehemiah says, he prayed. Expect it so that you can make sure you're making the decisions day by day that pull you inside that cone, because inside that cone you find everything you need, and you're protected from all the schemes of the enemy. So is it a negative to know that we will always be embattled? In a way, I suppose, but there's an encouragement on the end of the embattlement. And that is that if we're inside the cone, we got nothing to worry about. Amen? I believe it. Father, thank you for the mints that we've learned about and for the fact that we're going to take them out of here and they're going to make a difference. Thank you for the life, the work, the call, the mission of Nehemiah because you've sent us all on a mission. We're on our own mission. And we have to have you. We have to live inside that cone of your spirit in order to be able to accomplish your work and the fulfillment that comes with it. We commit, we renew our commitment this morning, knowing that that's the only way we can get to the fulfillment of your plan. I pray peace and power and provision and protection over your people as we go. Keep us in the center of what you have for us as we keep you at the center of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here and for listening. Y'all have a great week.